Hi everybody, welcome to Long Term Memory. My name is Jack and joining me as always is Colin. Colin, how you doing mate? Hi Jack, yeah I'm good mate. Yeah, long time no speak on this particular podcast after a little bit of a, a Christmas uh, break and some unwind time but glad to be back and looking forward to this one mate. How are you? Yeah man, I'm good. Like you says, I think it's been maybe three, almost four weeks since we've recorded a, a new episode. If you're on Patreon, obviously you've been getting some of the bonus stuff every now and again. So again, get over there, get signed up, uh, 10 pence a day, it's an absolute a bargain. And just before we dive into the episode, we need to give a shout out to the guys over there that are already subscribed, that are our executive producers. That's Mark Brown, Robert McMillan and new guy, Sandy, everybody knows Sandy, Um Cheers, Sandy. Cheers, Robert. Cheers, Mark. And this one is actually kind of something that Mark requested. Mark said he quite liked the true crime stuff. So we're going to do a true crime episode today, Colin. And it's somebody that we've mentioned a few times on previous pods without getting into much detail. So what we're doing today? Today we're going to talk about the serial killer called H.H. Holmes. Um, Or you might have heard The Devil in the White City, which was the book that was written about him. Um, which kind of tells the story, uh, quite an elaborate story, and quite a, a story that I'll make no apologies for, goes all over the place, Jack, and it's actually quite hard to track. We've been looking at this for a, over a week now, saying we wanted to talk about this and try to put some notes together and plan it all out, and even after all that, it is still hard to track the kind of complicated web that this guy put together, and I suppose that was by design on his behalf to keep himself away from the police and what's not. But it hasn't made it easy to document it. And the fact that it all happened um, in the early 1900s, where obviously there wasn't wall-to-wall news coverage, wall-to-wall reporting, it's not, it's not as easy to get all the details of it. But from what we know and what we've put together, it's really, really interesting. It's it's, it's, a, it's a meaty one, isn't it? Yeah, as you, like I say, you're going to have to sort of stick with us because the story does jump about from not just murder, but there's... Uh, is it polygamy or bigamy where he's getting married to multiple people there's children getting adopted It's he lives in different cities he owns different buildings it really is quite complicated we're going to try and get a linear story but it does jump about a little bit before we dive in actually mate like again we spoke about this and Leonardo DiCaprio is a, a bit of we're, we're fanboys of Leonardo DiCaprio let's be honest like yes. everything that he's in basically is is brilliant and he's been linked quite closely for a long time as starring as H.H. Holmes with uh, Martin Scorsese directing but there seems to have been a couple of changes maybe the last couple of months or whatever like what's actually happening with that project and we can't get to the bottom of it because we're using IMDB and that is kind of unreliable but at the moment, where are we when it comes to that project, mate? Well, with that, the the reason DiCaprio has been attached to it for so long is because he actually bought the rights to the book, the film rights to make the to make the book into um, a movie. He did that first of all, and then he brought Scorsese on board himself, which is why he's been attached to it from the start. But it was meant to be shooting at Paramount as a movie. It's now been moved over to Hulu, and it's going to be a TV miniseries. Um, Scorsese and DiCaprio are still attached to it. But the word is now that instead of Leo actually playing the main role, it's going to be Keanu Reeves, um, which I think is actually quite interesting. It'll be Keanu Reeves' first TV role in quite some time. And I quite often watch a film, especially one where we've described this story as being as complicated as this one is, Jack, saying that that was a really good film, but I would love to have seen it as a TV miniseries or seen it it on HBO or something like that. And I think it probably is the right way to go with this because you can go into it in a lot more detail go into the backstory and tell the story a hell of a lot better over 
eight, ten, twelve episodes than you probably could in a two-hour film. Yeah, because the book really shoots a, a TV series because it's split into, as far as I know, four parts, with the first three happening in Chicago between 1890 and 1893, while part four of the book takes place a little bit later in Philadelphia around about 1895, which is the story of Daniel Berman, who was the architect behind the 1893 World Fair, and then obviously that interlinks with H.H. Holmes, who has a very vivid and different plotline. He's a mentally unstable doctor, basically, who forms this plan to use an abandoned lot to build a murder hotel across the street from the pharmacy to lure and kill multiple victims. So it does uh, sound much better as like a a 12-part TV series or something rather than just trying to squeeze all of that story into two hours. So if it does eventually get produced, these things can fall apart pretty easily, mate. You know that? Like these things like can just get to a certain stage where somebody says I'm not interested or Keanu gets a better offer or whatever and it just could fall apart but if this comes to fruition I'm really fucking looking forward to it It'll be excellent um, I, I don't see it not happening it's going to happen one way or another whether it's like it stays Keanu Reeves or not I don't know but if DiCaprio's invested in actually buying the rights he's going to push it through and he's got the power to do that so it will happen one way or another I'm sure just remains to be seen who's going to be playing who um, but yeah, like yourself, it's it's one I'll certainly be watching. And as maybe, always, maybe, maybe when it does, does happen, sorry to interrupt you, this podcast might be discovered again, like three or four years down the line. Maybe. We'll suddenly have a hit podcast on our hands because we spoke about this first day. Who knows? Uh, who knows, mate? Who knows? As always, we start the serial killer podcast at the beginning of the killer's life. So he was born in 1861, this guy. He wasn't called... Henry Howard Holmes back then, he was called Herman Webster Mudgett. Um, you can see why he changed his name, can you? Yes, like, fuck, I don't want to be a Herman. Are you mad? <laughs> or Herman, a the, Herman the German or a Mudgett, yeah. <laughs> fuck, fuck being a Mudgett. We'll give you a quick overview before we, we dive straight into his early life. He confessed to 27 murders and this is when it gets really fucking complicated because some of these people that he said are murdered were very viably still alive. Like they were still, it's like, I murdered Jim. Oh, no, there's Jim there. All right, <laughs> I never murdered Jim then. Sorry, I was just talking shit. So, and this was all while away in execution. So like that, it's quite common for serial killers to make stuff up and stuff like that. But uh, for all his murders, he was convicted and sentenced to death for only one murder, and that was of his accomplice and business partner, Benjamin Peachel, who we will get to later mate so it's already started it's complicated it really is but these other victims what what was he doing supposedly at the time so well his victims were killed in a mixed use building which he owned in Chicago which was located about three miles west of the 1893 World's Fair and um, it was supposedly referred to as the World's Fair Hotel but informally called the Murder Castle um, although evidence suggests that this hotel was never actually truly open for business. It was just used for other things. Um, but, I mean, he starts a life of crime and a life of badness long before he starts killing people. He was he was a con artist for some time. He was a trigamist. And he had he was the subject of more than 50 different lawsuits just in the, just in the city of Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, which, that's that's a lot of doing before you even start murdering people. That's a, that's a bit of a film in itself before... You start bringing the killing and the murdering into it. Well, well, it says we will get to the police and his 
ability not to get arrested for things. Like, he seemed to just get away with shit. He seemed to be like, oh, Henry done this. He's a fraudster. Let's not arrest him, but let's just let him do what he does. Oh, he's been linked to children's deaths. Let's not arrest him. It's really, it's quite bizarre, but this, like, we spoke about Damer and stuff like that and how the police were piss poor at their job back in the 70s. This is fucking 80 years, 90 years before that. So is there any excuse for the police being that bad at their job back then? Do you let do you let it slide because they were just shit at it and they were, it was a brand new thing? They, they'd never come up against that, a serial killer? Yeah, I think there's, you've got to put that, I think you've got to kind of take that into account because the, that, the act of being a policeman back then it's, it's probably it's not that far off being a sheriff in a cowboy film really probably mm. there's no probably very little next to none paperwork there's no witness statements there's probably absolutely nothing in terms of actual evidence once you catch somebody it's basically were you caught red-handed yes you go to jail other than that you're probably not getting caught for things there's no dna there's no video there's no cctv or anything like that so I think it could be more excusable for the mistakes that were made back then compared to now when they've got all the assistance and all the help available to them. But even looking through the records, the, the fact that the hotel was supposedly, in inverted commas, called the World's Fair Hotel just shows you how bad the records were. You would think it would be easy enough to look back to 1893 and find out the name of a hotel, but we don't know it. We don't actually know if it was called that. No. It just shows you how bad the records were. Anyway, his early life... Uh, like we mentioned, he was born 1861 on May the 16th, just, I was going to say a week before my birthday, but obviously I was born a little bit later than him, but you know just, what I mean? Just a bit later now. Yeah. Uh, the names are a little bit weird, his mum and dad, um, Levi Horton Mudgett and Theodate Page Price. I don't know who the mother and I don't know who the father is there. I don't know who's who. <laughs> um, I think Levi would be the dad, I think. So, Theodate? Have you ever heard that as a name? No, I haven't at all. And I'm just, listen, I, I'm i going by the fact that the guy that makes Reggie Reggie Sauce Jack is called Levi Roots. <laughs> so, <laughs> let's not get ahead of ourselves in terms of being sure about what I'm seeing here. But mm. that's that's my goal. I'm going to go with that. Yeah, so they were both descended from the first English immigrants around about that area. New Hampshire, he was born in a place called Gilmanton, basically. So... Very early life, uh, born to parents that we can't decipher who's who, to be perfectly honest with you. He was the third-born child, mate. He had an older sister, Eileen, pretty normal name. Older brother, Arthur, pretty normal name. Younger brother, Henry. Younger sister, Mary. He must have been really pissed off that he was called Herman, man. Ah, oh, fuck's sake. Like, because yeah. Germans back then were pretty, like, I'm even pretty sure back then nobody liked the Germans. Oh, was in fact... People are going to pull us up for this. I don't think Germany was actually a fucking country back then. Oh, nobody knows that. Nobody That's, fucking knows. Way back in the day, who that. gives a fuck? Yeah. See, <laughs> interesting point there. You've got a younger brother called Henry, and that's the name he obviously ends up taking eventually as well, eh? Yeah, fair enough. Aye, he's probably stole his brother's name now. Yeah. Um, so he's, his father came from a farming family, and at times he worked as a farmer, a trader, and a house painter. Um, the family, the parents in particular, were devout Methodists. And later attempts to try and fit Holmes into this pattern, seen in modern serial killers, did describe him as torturing animals and suffering from the abuse at the hands of a violent father. But contemporary and even eyewitness accounts of his childhood provide absolutely no proof of either, Jack. So 
I know people liked to say, oh, he's a serial killer, he did this, he did that. There's actually nothing to actually suggest that was the case with this guy. He didn't display any of those early tendencies. Yeah, I think the sort of first um, verifiable bit of his life comes when he's about 16 and he graduates from Phillips Exeter Academy and he takes a teaching job, even at that age of 16, in uh, Gilmanton, where he was born, and later nearby in a place called Alton. Imagine Jack, imagine Jack, you're sat in school and your teacher comes in and he's 16. <laughs> Fuck right. off, you. Yeah. Right, big man. <laughs> right, <Okay. tiger>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's it, mate, yeah. Um, he gets married he, pretty young, it sounds like, yeah. About, did he? 1878, he marries Clara Lovering in Alton, and um, they had a son just two years later, in February the 3rd, 1880, a guy called Robert Lovering Mudgett. Um, Robert became a certified public accountant and actually served as a city manager of Orlando, Florida, which puts him, sounds a good guy in my book. Um, Holmes ended up enrolling in the University of Vermont in Burlington at the age of 18, but he was dissatisfied with the school jack and left after just one year and went to the University of Michigan instead to study medicine and surgery, where he passed all his exams and he graduated in June of 1884. Yeah, so while he's enrolled there, he worked with a, a guy called Professor Herdman, who was the chief anatomy instructor. Holmes, like, apprenticed, basically, in New Hampshire under an guy called Newman Wright, who was a noted advocate of human dissection. So this kind of, again, links back to Jeffrey Damon a little bit, where you've got somebody in your life who is right into anatomy, and then you've got another guy who's right into chopping people up. <laughs> and he seems to have um, met both of these people within a couple of years of each other, or like within the same year, almost. It's, yeah, it's just bad influences. There are people that have got an interest in something which maybe is for good, from a medical point of view, but has warped brain is just what the, what the badness of it, and what we're going to hear about dissection and human abuse and stuff coming up, and you can probably can start to Bring it back to here. Mm-hmm. Years later, he was suspected of murder, but he claimed that he was nothing more than an insurance fraudster. He admitted to using cadavers to defraud life insurance companies several times in college, which we will. Hello, friends. Colin here. The looks, the charm, and the brains behind Drunk Their Memory. Just wanted to pop in and interrupt your listening pleasure to let you know about our Patreon and some changes that we've made to it recently. We've now introduced a £1 tier where you get absolutely hee-haw other than the sense of achievement that could only come from supporting two great guys like myself and Jack. We've also reduced the price of the two top tiers uh, by a pound on each of them just because we appreciate life is a little bit shit just now and uh, if we can make things a little bit better for people then we will so check us out at patreon.com forward slash wrong term memory and you'll be able to get early access to shows, ad free and lots of bonus content. Get to with his business partners and stuff later on. He's um, described by housemates as uh, treating Clara violently and in 1884 before his graduation she actually moved away from him back to New Hampshire and later that wrote that she actually knew little of him afterwards, so she got away from him quite quickly and sensibly stayed away and didn't really get to know or experience the horrors of what were to come. Um, he moved to Forks in New York. Is that where Tony Soprano grew up? I think it is, isn't it? 
Moore's Fox. I'm not sure, mate, to be honest with you. Yeah, Maybe. I think it was. Um, a rumour spread that Holmes had been seen with a little boy who later disappeared. Um, alarm bells. Uh, Holmes claimed the boy went back to his home in Massachusetts. No investigation took place, and Holmes quickly left the town, Jack. Just that sentence there, no investigation took place, is bananas. Like, we boys disappeared. Let's not investigate that. As you see, this guy just, like, literally running away like that. Bye! Yeah. It wasn't me. Jurio. <laughs> he later travelled to Philadelphia and Pennsylvania and got a job as a, a keeper at a, a state hospital. But, again, just sort of quit after a few days like that. No, this is not for me. This is probably quite an important point here because he takes a position at a drugstore in Philadelphia but while working there a boy died again after taking medicine that was purchased in the store. Obviously Holmes denies any involvement in the child's death and again you can see the fucking <laughs> the dust coming through his feet as he runs away out of the city. Surely like that. This guy keeps turning up in cities and kids keep dying yeah. and then he fucks off man like again of destruction he, behind him. Aye, basically, man, but there's no fucking paperwork or anything back then, so it kind of gets let slid. Yeah, he left that city and moved to Chicago. Before before he did that, he changed his name to Henry Hibbard Holmes to avoid the possibility of being exposed by victims of his previous scams. Um, In his confession, after he's eventually arrested, he claimed that he killed his former medical school classmate, Robert Leacock, in 1886. He did it for insurance money. Um, The thing is, though, that Leacock actually died in Watford, (laughs) Ontario, in Canada on the 5th of October 1889 and it's just one example of the confusion that tried to track this story is because when you listen to what he's telling you himself, what he's admitting himself even that doesn't add up at times he's claiming to have killed people that are actually alive for three years further than that so this is a bumpy ride folks. It really is so like in 1886 Three years before that guy's found alive, uh, he's still married to Clara, but he decides to marry uh, another lady called Murta Beltnap. Um, basically, uh, he files from for divorce a couple of weeks after marrying this new woman, alleging infidelity on the original wife's part, but the claims couldn't be proven, and the suit eventually goes nowhere. But there's surviving paperwork that basically indicates that she was probably never informed of the suit. Like she had no idea that she was getting divorced. And in any case, the divorce was never finalised. So it was dismissed in 1891, which is five years after this, on the grounds of uh, an inverted commas want of prosecution, which I will admit, mate, I have no idea what it means, but it's all slimy and backwards and doesn't particularly um, point to a guy who cares about what's happening. No, he's he's got married basically well already married. Um Peter Barlowin, it's not the not the best. He has a daughter with this woman, Marta, um called Lucy. Lucy um Theodate Holmes, so he names her middle name after his mother. Right. Um he was born on July the fourth. Sorry, she was born on July the fourth, eighteen eighty nine, in Englewood, Chicago, Illinois. And she became a public school teacher. Um Holmes lived with a second wife and a daughter in Illinois and spent most of his time then in Chicago tending to business after that. However, Jack, he found another woman not long after this, didn't he, in 1894? Yeah, Georgina Yoke. Uh, he decides to marry her, like he says, in 1894, in Denver, Colorado, while still married to both 
uh, Clara Ann Murtagh, which makes him the trigamist that we were talking about earlier. So he's married to three different women at once. And this is when he arrives in Illinois. And this is basically where the murder castle, in inverted commas, is. It is, yeah. This is where he starts using the name H.H. Holmes. He he comes across the Elizabeth S. Holton's drugstore, which is at the northwest corner of South Wallace Avenue and West 63rd Street in Inglewood. And um, she gave Holmes a job and he proved to be a very hardworking employee. Worked so hard, they made enough money that he eventually bought the store. Um, there's been several books written, Jack, that portray Holton's husband as quite an old man who quickly vanished alongside his wife. But Dr. Holton was actually a fellow Michigan alumni and only a few years older than Holmes. And both the Holtons did remain in Inglewood throughout Holmes' life and they survived well into the 20th century. It is a myth that he actually killed both these people. He didn't. He just basically managed to get the business off of them through whatever means necessary. And he, he took over it, basically, but they were two people that he did not murder, despite myths, stories, and probably confessions that he did. Yeah, there was another castle victim, in inverted commas, called Kate Durkey. But again, Holmes didn't kill her. She turned out to be very much alive after his... Uh, I was going to say protestations, but that was not the right word after him saying, oh, I killed Katie. Oh, again, there, Katie over there, you're talking absolute nonsense. But he decides, <laughs> to, he decides to purchase this empty lot across from the drugstore where construction began in 1887 for a two-storey mixed-use building, is what they're calling, with apartments in the second floor and retail spaces, including a new drugstore, basically. So he's trying to open up what sounds like a, a bit of a multiplex, basically, for himself. Um, including, like it says, a drugstore and some apartments that he looks to rent out. This is when it gets it gets really weird here. What's that? It's the ice cream van outside my house. My Do you know what? We're just keeping it in, man. I yeah, cannot which, be bothered editing that. Yeah. It'll probably be outside your house in a couple of minutes as well. We have, it'll, it'll not be long until it gets here. Yeah. Um, it's gone quiet now, but it will drive away in a minute and you'll hear the Benny, the Benny Hill soundtrack. Um, we were going to say, Jack, there's a creditor of Holmes named uh, John De Brule who died of apoplexy on April 17th, 1891 in the drugstore. Um, it's unknown if Holmes was involved with his demise, um, but um, there was a start of issues with this new building, Jack, when he declined to be the architects or the steel company, however called Et That Iron and Steel, and they were sued in 1888. It's four years later in 1892 that he decides to add a a third floor, basically to his multiplex, telling investors and suppliers that he intended to use it as a hotel during the upcoming World's Columbian Exposition, um, though the hotel portion was never complete. It was somewhat complete, though. Um, three stories in a basement. The first floor was the storefront. The second consisted of this elaborate torture rooms things. So this is when it starts to get really fucking twisted, which contained chutes that led to the basement. And then the third floor, uh, held more apartment rooms. Uh, they were soundproof rooms and mazes of hallways, some which seemed to go nowhere. Many of the rooms were uh, outfitted with chutes that again would drop straight down to the basement where Holmes uh, had his acid vats, quick lime, and basically a crematorium to quickly dispose of his victims' bodies. That's the, the thing with this, which is quite interesting, is that we see here that he declined to pay the architects or the steel company, and this happened time and time again during the building of this um, of, of, of this sort of project because it's rumoured that 
he never ever wanted one architect to have the full plans for the building yeah. or one company to build the whole building. He wanted it done by three, four, five, six different people so that they would only ever really have records or see the parts that they created. He would have the the ultimate blueprints of this place and everything that was in it and all the horror it would become. Mm. Um, furniture suppliers found Holmes was hiding their materials for which he never paid for either. They actually discovered hidden rooms and passages throughout the building. Uh, their search made the news and that made investors for the Plant Hotel pull out of the deal when a jeweller in the building showed them the articles. The police did get involved a little bit, Jack, in 1894. Um, some police officers inspected the hotel while Holmes was out. During the inspection, they found rooms with hinged walls and false partitions, rooms linked with secret passageways, and even airtight rooms that were connected to pipelines filled with gas, which Holmes actually built to be used as gas chambers. Yeah, man. That's fucking mental, obviously. Like, we've already mentioned these shoots that he would use to, like, instantaneously deliver bodies to the basement, and once there, he would make use of eight surgical tables down there and a massive array of medical tools to dissect bodies before supposedly uh, selling their organs and bones on the black market and to medical institutions. Uh, this obviously back in the day where like, even the the best unis and stuff would be on the lookout for cadavers and wouldn't be, um, would buy stuff from, let's say, naughty, naughty guys. They would be quite happy to do that as long as they were teaching their medicine students how to like cut people up and stuff like that so um, he was making a bit of money on the side by doing that the um the hotel actually ended up being gutted completely by a fire which was started by an unknown arsonist shortly after holmes was arrested but it was largely rebuilt and uh, used as a post office up until 1938 besides the infamous murder castle he also owned a one-story factory jack which he claimed to be used for glass bending However, it's unknown if the, the factory furnace was ever actually used for glass bending or if this was used just to create um, incriminating evidence of his crimes. Yeah, so we're going to go on to the, <laughs> the, the murders that can be almost proven here. So one of Holmes' early murder victims was his mistress, Julia Smythe. She was the wife of Ned Connor who'd moved into Holmes' building and began working on his pharmacy jeweler's counter. So this might be the jeweler that sort of grasped him in later on. After Connor found out that Smythe was having an affair with Holmes, he quit his job moved away, leaving Smythe and the daughter, Peril, behind. So it's getting a little bit complicated. So Smythe gained custody of Peril and remained at the hotel, continuing a relationship with Holmes. Julia and Peril disappeared, but on Christmas Eve, 1891, and Holmes... Holmes later claimed um, she had died during an abortion, though truly what happened to her and her daughter has never been confirmed, which is just bananas, man. You just don't know what happened to yeah. a mother and her daughter. It's just you, you can tell the story that the mother died during an abortion, for sure. You can do that, but that doesn't mean the daughter just suddenly disappears as well. But where does the body go if they abortion? Were abortions that illegal back then that you would I don't know. It just doesn't. It just doesn't compute uh, in this modern day that we that we stand that a daughter and mother can disappear like that, and just nobody knows what what happened. People were disappearing left, right, and centre. Um, another mm. one of his likely lovers, uh, Emmeline Segrande, began working in the building back in May nineteen eighty two. In eighteen ninety two, she was disappeared and gone by that December. Another woman vanished, Edna Van Tassel, and she's believed to be among his uh, victims as well. 
Um, his usual murder method, Jack, was suffocation of his victims, including either an overdose of chloroform, overexposure to lighting gas fumes, being trapped in an airless vault. Um, that's just some examples of what he did. He's also claimed to have used starvation and burning victims alive in his castle. Um, one of the ones that I remember reading about as well was the, the gas fumes one. He actually built um, almost glass walls to one of these gas chambers so that mm. he could actually sit and watch through the glass and watch the person die. Mm-hmm. So while working at the, the chemical bank uh, on Dearborn Street, he met and became close friends with a guy called Benjamin Pitzel. Um, just going to call him Benji from now on. He was a carpenter and a bit of a criminal um, who was like kicking about in the same building and he decided that he was going to employ, in inverted commas, this guy as his right-hand man for several criminal schemes. Um, a district attorney later described Benji as Holmes' tool, his creature, as if he was like some sort of fucking wee goblin that he kept in a lead. But in early 1893, uh, there was an actress called Minnie Williams. She moved to Chicago and Holmes claimed to have met her in an employment office, though there were rumours they'd met in Boston many years earlier. Offered her a job at the hotel as a personal stenographer, basically. I think that's somebody that sort of types shit, is that right? Mm-hmm. Back yeah, in the day? I think so, yeah. Yeah, persuaded Williams to transfer the deed of her property um, in Texas to a man named Alexander Bond. But that was just an alias of Holmes. This is when it starts to get really fucking complicated, mate. So I'm going to let you take the next, oh, uh, thanks, the thanks next couple. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So in April of 1893, she transferred that deed over with Holmes serving as the notary. So basically, Holmes later signed the deed over to Benji, giving Benji now the alias of Benton T. Lyman. <laughs> oh, ben. um, mm-hmm. The next month, Holmes and Williams presented themselves as husband and wife. They rented an apartment in Chicago's Lincoln Park. Her sister Annie came to visit in July, and she wrote to her aunt that she planned to accompany brother Harry to Europe. Unfortunately, neither Minnie nor Annie were seen alive after the 5th of July, 1893. Holmes, though, had an entrepreneurial spirit, and uh, based on his former medical education and his connections, he was able to sell skeletons, Jack, to medical labs and schools. So he, and sometimes a hired assistant, were accused of stripping the flesh off of bodies, dissecting them, and then preparing the viable skeletons. The rest of the remains would then be tossed in pits of lime or acid, which would eventually basically just break down the remaining evidence. Hmm. So he is eventually... I'm trying to get much creature does it than this, sorry, of all this sort of stuff. He's also the man to go to if you're looking for a skeleton. I know. I get, just get a fucking HH. He'll be down here with a fucking skeleton in five <laughs> minutes, man. It's just bizarre. He does eventually get captured, but I don't particularly think it's for murder at first. I think it's that insurance companies are really wanting to prosecute him for arson because he left Chicago, <laughs> fuck's sake, in July 1894 and he reappeared in Fort Worth uh, where he inherited property from the Williams sisters at the intersection. doesn't matter where it was, but he inherited property from these Williams sisters. Once again, attempted to build an incomplete structure without paying suppliers, uh, up to his old tricks again, no paying people, uh, avoiding contractors, basically. This building, unlike the former of his properties, was not at the site of any additional killings, so there doesn't seem to have been anybody murdered here. Eventually, in 1894, he's arrested and briefly jailed for the first time. This is the first time this country's been in jail, 1894, and it's not in the charge of, like, murdering kids or kidnapping or 
big amount or anything like that. It's on the charge of selling mortgaged goods in Missouri. But he's promptly bailed out. But while in jail, he struck up a conversation with a convicted outlaw, eh, Marion Hedgepeth, who was serving a 25-year sentence. Holmes conducted this mad plan to swindle an insurance company out of $10,000, which back then would have been a hell of a lot, up to, I guess, about a million dollars, by taking out a policy on himself and then faking his own death. He promised, like, this is this that this, this kind of cracks me up a bit because he's obviously speaking to this uh, Marion person. Uh, he's going to get a million a million pounds, say, and he promises uh, Marion like a thousand pound, basically, like peanuts, in exchange for the name of a lawyer who could be trusted. And this is when he's directed to a Saint Louis attorney named Jephthah Howe, mate. So what's Jephthah doing? So Jephthah Howe was in practice with his older brother Alfonso Howe. Um, who didn't have any involvement with Holmes or Piazza or any of their fraudulent activities. Jephthah, though, he found the schemes brilliant and he was right into it. Um, however, Holmes's plan to fake his own death failed when the insurance company became suspicious and refused to pay. So Holmes did not press the claim. Instead, he concocted a similar plan with uh, Benji Pizzell. Pizzell agreed to fake his own death so that his wife could collect on a $10,000 life insurance policy, which she would then split with Holmes and Jephthah. The scheme, which was to take place in Philadelphia, called for him to set himself up as an inventor under the name B.F. Perry and then be killed and disfigured in a lab explosion. <laughs> um, Holmes basically wanted to find an appropriate cadaver to play the role of Benji. Instead, Holmes killed Benji by knocking him unconscious with chloroform and setting his body on fire. Um, in his confession, Holmes implied that Benji was still alive after he used the chloroform on him, but before he set him on fire. However, forensic evidence presented at his later trial showed the chloroform had been administrated after his death, a fact of which the insurance company was unaware, presumably to fake the suicide and to exonerate Holmes should he be charged with murder. So he's no stupid jack either, this guy. No, he managed to collect the insurance pay on the basis of the the actual genuine Benji corpse. Like, look, I've actually got a dead guy here. Doesn't matter that I set him on fire or fuck all, but I've still got him. So he managed to claim that he then went on to manipulate Benji's wife into allowing, this is fucking mental, three of her five children, Alice, Nell and Howard, to be placed in his custody. So somehow fucking HH has managed to get three children placed into his custody. The eldest daughter and the baby remained with Mrs. Benji and Holmes and the three other children travelled through Northern United States and into Canada. I don't understand why. I don't. I don't understand why a woman would let her three children just get took away by a fucking maniac. But <laughs> it's also interesting that he didn't take the baby because that's too much work. And the eldest thought was probably too old and smart for it. Yeah, he took the three middle kids that he could probably manipulate for God knows what. And this poor woman, that's she's um, she's mourning her husband's death and he's waving money at her. She's just obviously been weak and gave them away. Mm-hmm. But it's, it makes you wonder what, what's he doing with these children. So he, he manages to then persuade her um, to take a parallel route um, while using various aliases and lying her way through this whole thing about her husband's death, claiming that Benji was now in London 
even though they'd already claimed insurance on his body, so as well as life. This poor woman still thinks that her husband's alive. She thinks the plan oh. to fake the death has worked. Oh, so she's got no fucking idea what's happening. No, she, she you know, they have a around yet, fuck's sake. <laughs> she, she thinks Ben, she's out hiding in London, waiting for them to get all their money together and have the great life that this scam was going to give them. And uh, by the sounds of it, uh, HH couldn't be bothered travelling that far because in Detroit, just before en- entering Canada, like they're sort of all staying within a couple of blocks of each other. Is that right? Yeah, really, really close to each other. Um, and even Pretty audacious. Moved, yeah, <laughs> he was actually staying at another location with his wife. He was unaware of the whole affair. <laughs> he, was, he would later confess to murdering Alice and Nelly by forcing them into a large trunk and locking them inside it. So that's the, the woman and the, one of the kids, Nelly. He just put them in a trunk and locked it, basically, and left them to die. He drilled a hole in the lid of the trunk, put on one end of a hose through the hole, attached the other end to a gas line, and basically just gassed them to death. Um, Holmes buried their naked bodies in the cellar of his rental house at 16 St. Vincent Street in Toronto. Um, this home no longer exists. Um, it's now been realigned into part of Bay Street. Um, but this is when Frank Gere comes into the story, a Philadelphia police detective who was assigned to investigate Holmes and find those three missing children. And he found the decomposed bodies of the two Piazzo girls in the cellar of the Toronto home. He wrote at the time, the deeper we dug, the more horrible the odour became. And when we reached the depth of three feet, we discovered what appeared to be the bone of the forearm of a human being. He then went to Indianapolis, where Holmes had rented a cottage. Holmes was reported to have visited a local pharmacy to purchase the drugs which he used to kill young Howard Piazzo. And... A repair shop to sharpen the knives he used to chop up the body before he burned it. The boy's teeth and bits of bone were discovered in the house's chimney. His murder spree finally ended uh, when he was arrested in Boston in 1894 in November after being tracked. Hello, friends. Colin here. The looks, the charm, and the brains behind Drunk Term Memory. Just wanted to pop in and interrupt your listening pleasure to let you know about our Patreon and some changes that we've made to it recently. We've now introduced a £1 tier where you get absolutely hee-haw other than the sense of achievement that could only come from supporting two great guys like myself and Jack. We've also reduced the price of the two top tiers uh, by a pound on each of them just because we appreciate life is a little bit shit just now and uh, if we can make things a little bit better for people then we will so check us out at patreon.com forward slash wrong term memory and you'll be able to get early access to shows, ad free and lots of bonus content. There, from Philadelphia by the Pinkertons, mate. Uh, Where have you heard that name before? That video game. Yeah, Red Dead Redemption in it. Yeah, they are, yeah. So the Pinkertons run about and they eventually hunt this guy down. He was held in an outstanding warrant for horse theft. Like, so he's stealing <laughs> horses as well. Like, he's got time to just fucking rip about. Yeah, you know, come here, black beauty, you cunt, you're getting bumped. <laughs> so that was in Texas. And why you long face? Uh, why you long face? Because you keep murdering people, you cunt. Like, the Texan authorities became a little bit more suspicious at this point and Holmes appeared poised to flee the country uh, in the company of his unsuspecting third wife. Uh, who I don't fucking know who it is, like I can't even remember her name now. Following the discovery of Alice and Nell's bodies in July 1895, the Chicago police and reporters began investigating Holmes' building in Englewood, uh, now locally referred to as the Castle. 
There's many sensationalist claims were made. There's no evidence that was actually found which could have convicted homes in Chicago. And according to Selzer, stories of torture equipment found in a building are a 20th century fiction. Well, he, he was put on, uh, put on trial for the murder of Benji in October of 1895. He was found guilty and he was sentenced to death. By then, it was evident, evident that Holmes had also murdered the three missing children. Following his conviction, he confessed to 27 murders in Chicago, Indianapolis and Toronto, although, like we said, some of the people he confessed to murdering were still alive. He also confessed to six attempted murders. Attempted murders sorry. And um, here's probably why this story came out, Jack, why he did all this, why he made it up. He was paid $7,500, a hell of a lot of money back then, by the Hearst newspaper group in exchange for his confession. Regardless of this, though, it was eventually found out to be mostly nonsense that he told them. It seems bizarre because you think if you were the Hearst newspaper, you could say to him, yeah, I'll give you a million pound, mate, honestly, if you confess to this, because it's not like you're going to have to back transfer it to him. There's no legal precedent there that you've said, I'll give you seven and a half grand, and you confess to murders, mate, and honestly, we'll give you it. We'll, we'll stick it in your bank and you can, you can live out your life in the lap of luxury. It just seems a really bizarre thing for A, Holmes to agree with. Because he does seem like quite a smart guy in the sense that he can keep all these fucking multiple lives going. He can steal horses, he can he can go to Canada, he can adopt children. And then a newspaper say we'll give seven and a half grand and he falls for it. It just seems bizarre. It does seem bizarre, but I don't know if it was just his, his last roll of the dice or last bit of money he could possibly try and get. He's a con man that's been desperate to hustle for money his whole life, isn't it? Yeah, maybe that was him. His last, his last con was telling them a lot of shite to get the money off of them. Uh, maybe it, it got it. It gets even weirder here, mate. To be perfectly honest with you, because not only does he give various accounts of his life, uh, he starts to claim that he's innocent, and then that he's possessed by Satan, and his uh, propensity for lying has made it difficult for researchers like, uh, of course, like us. But like people that have done it on the internet, that is a fucking stretch, yeah. Because I have no idea who anybody is in this story. To be perfectly honest with you, um, they're trying to ascertain the truth um, based on his statements, which are absolutely fucking nonsense. So he does write confessions in prison, but so he does. He does, and um, he mentions how drastically his facial appearance has changed since his imprisonment. He described his new grim appearance as gruesome and taking a satanical cast. And he wrote that he was now convinced after everything he'd done, he was beginning to resemble the devil. He was hung, Jack, in May the 7th, 1896 at Missing Prison, uh, also known as the Philadelphia County Prison, which is a hell of a lot easier to say, mm-hmm. uh, for the murder of Benji. Until the very moment of his death, he remained calm and amiable, showing very few signs of fear, anxiety or depression. Um, despite this, though, he did ask for his coffin to be contained in cement and buried 10 feet deep because he was very concerned that grave robbers would steal his body and use it for dissection. Yeah, and this will teach the cunt right because um, he was hanged, but his neck didn't break, and he just sort of squirmed about, basically, uh, twitching for over 15 minutes before being pronounced dead 20 minutes after the trap had been sprung. And upon his execution, his body uh, was interred in an unmarked grave at Holy Cross Cemetery, a Catholic cemetery in the Philadelphia western suburb of Eden, supposedly, in Pennsylvania. So he kind of got his wish to be buried 
10 feet in a, a concrete grave, I'm pretty sure. He did. Um, he got that, and I suppose once you once you bury a grave 10 feet in concrete, you're, you're going to be very unlikely to excavate it and do anything else with it, so it would have stayed there. Um, Hedgepiff did uh, New Year's Eve 1909. Hedgepiff, who had been pardoned for informing on homes, was shot and killed by a police officer called Edward Jabrick during a hold-up in a Chicago saloon. And then, uh, five years later, in 1914, a report in the Chicago Tribune reported the death of Patrick Quinlan, the former caretaker of the Castle Jack, and with him dying, the many mysteries would kind of remain unexplained at this point. Aye, uh, because uh, the guy Quinlan had committed suicide by taking strychnine, which will fuck you up, basically. His body was found in his bedroom with a note that read, I couldn't sleep, and his surviving relatives claimed that he'd been haunted for several months and was suffering from, uh, he was basically tripping, out of his dial, the castle itself was mysteriously gutted by a fire in 1895. I think we spoke about that earlier. But according to a newspaper clipping from the New York Times, there were two men seen entering the back of the building between 8 and 9 p.m. And about half an hour later, they were seen exiting the building and rapidly running away. Following several explosions, the castle went up in flames. And afterwards, investigators found a half-empty gas can underneath the back steps of the building. The building survived the fire and remained in use until it was torn down in 1938. And the site is occupied by the Englewood branch of the United States Postal Service now. In 2017, amid allegations that Holmes had in fact escaped his execution, they actually did exhume his body, Jack, for testing. They went down to that 10 feet of concrete uh-huh. and they got it out. Uh, due to his coffin being contained in cement, his body was found not to have decomposed as it normally would. His clothes were actually perfectly preserved. His moustache was still <laughs> intact. Um, I don't know why I find that so funny, man. <laughs> the body was positively identified by his teeth as being that of Holmes. He was then reburied. Um, that would have been the ultimate final con, wouldn't it, if he actually managed to avoid his own execution? Yeah, that's it, man. I just find it funny that he's, it's just like a moustache, just, and he, just, he's closing a moustache. Imagine, imagine a wee skeleton, skeleton with a moustache on it. That's it, man. Um, like, obviously, there's a lot of popular culture stuff. He's been in, there's been books wrote about him, there's been films about him, there's going to be a thing with uh, Leonardo DiCaprio or Keanu Reeves. So we're not going to get into all of them, but if you manage to follow that story, well done, because I'm confused as fuck me, I have no idea what happened and I think that's basically what this guy wanted throughout his whole life was to cause mass confusion and just point in lots of different directions Yeah, that's exactly what he wanted to do, coming back to the building of the hotel, making that really really complicated, having five or six different designers, architects and not letting any of them see each other's plans which means that's confusing, nobody ever really knows the true horrors of what happened in there and he moved around, found loads of wives, loads of children, loads of victims, moved all around the country, even to Canada at times. So, yeah, it's a hard story to chronicle, which kind of backs up my earlier thought, Jack, that this will serve a much better miniseries than it ever would a film. Yeah, I think so. I think we'll call it a day then, mate, because my brain hurts a little bit trying to follow him about what he was doing. Like, stealing horses was the thing that... Really confused me. That just came from fucking total left <laughs> field. Nowhere, yeah. like he's in Canada and then Texas is fucking miles away. How the fuck did he get there, man? Like, <laughs> or rapid. Or or something. <laughs> oh, really confused, but I, I kind of enjoyed it. Um, I don't really know if I know what happened, but 
Yeah, we'll call it a day there, mate, yeah. Yeah, if you were good bits when the TV show started, you definitely would remember it all and it'll be a good story to watch. So bring it on. Bring on Leo and Keanu. That's it. Right, guys. We'll see you soon. Bye.